Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. As you have probably seen, there's been some upheaval in Saudi Arabia. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has consolidated power in a pretty dramatic fashion by detaining would-be rivals and diminishing other power centers in the country. These moves coincided with an apparent rocket attack launched from Yemen towards the vicinity of the airport in Riyadh, and that has sparked a very dramatic decision by Saudi Arabia to impose a total blockade of Yemen. That decision could have a profoundly devastating impact on the situation in Yemen, where nearly the entire population is affected by an ongoing conflict that is pitting an Iran-backed rebel group against the Saudi-backed government. The rebel group controls much of the northern part of the country, including the capital Sana and its largest port Hodaida. Saudi Arabia, with American backing, controls all the sea, air, and land lanes around the country. This, of course, gives it the ability to impose a total blockade on the country. Now, if access to Yemen remains shut down, the World Food Program chief, David Beasley, told reporters that, quote, I can't imagine this will not be one of the most devastating humanitarian catastrophes we've seen in decades. On the line with me to discuss this very volatile situation is Scott Paul of Oxfam America. Scott, who has spent time in Yemen and lobbies the U.S. government on behalf of humanitarian access in Yemen, explains the situation on the ground right now. And as you'll see, there's actually a lot of lack of clarity about this apparent blockade. We also discuss more broadly the political environment in Yemen and the wider Middle East that is giving rise to what is now the world's worst humanitarian crisis. So I think this is a pretty useful and timely conversation about the situation in Yemen right now. And I would also encourage you to go back and search the archives for other episodes about Yemen. This is one of those situations that I like to revisit, frankly, because it is, as I said, the world's worst humanitarian crisis in the world and also just like does not get a sufficient amount of international attention, media or otherwise. So I like to try to do my part to, to shine a light on it. Thank you for listening. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link. Send me your thoughts, uh, people I should interview, topics I should cover, anything else that's on your mind. I do love hearing from you. Okay, now here is my conversation with Scott Paul of Oxfam America. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
it's uh, it's a lot of confusion right now. Nobody really knows <laughs> nobody really knows how this is all going to shake out in the end. And this has followed a pattern that we've seen throughout the conflict in Yemen, um, where one of the the parties to the conflict, in this case, the Saudi-led coalition, um, makes a really big sweeping public statement about its policy with very, very little detail. And then it's up to uh, people down the chain both to, fi- to, to figure it out. And when I say people down the chain, I mean not only people like us who have to cope with the, the implications of the decisions, but the people who are implementing the decisions themselves. And um, so no one really knows what's going to happen, but that in and of itself is having really um, horrible implications for people who are already um, in one of the most dire situations in the world. For example, yeah, so like in Sana'a, um, there have been, on the first day within hours of the announcement, um, there have been lines down the street for uh, for diesel and, and uh, other fuel and cooking fuel um, and prices have spiked pretty much overnight. Um, and that situation, situations like that have, have t- been taking place in governorates around the country because people don't know what the future holds. I guess from reports that I've seen, it seems that uh, at least in the first few days of this total blockade, uh, that it has been pretty strictly enforced. I saw the Red Cross put out a statement saying that um, some chlorine tablets that they had uh, sent en route to um, to to parts of Yemen over a land route in Saudi Arabia were blocked, and chlorine tablets are used to fight uh, cholera. Uh, and then you have some other, like there's insulin that's being held up at the border. And then I've heard uh, of of ships not being allowed to dock and, and planes not being allowed to land in, in Sana. So at least for now, it seems like it's a pretty total blockade. It does seem that way. So w- w- the, re- the reason I hesitate to say, yet, to say yes to that is the statement itself was said it, it, that it was supposed to make accommodations for humanitarian assistance. That was that was actually in the statement, and the fact that a lot of humanitarian assistance, uh, in terms of cargo and personnel, are being held back is contributing to that confusion. Um, so, in in theory, we should be seeing more movement than we're seeing, even if the statement is is strictly held to. Um, the flip side of this is, I did hear um, I, I did hear one person who was able to leave Yemen in the past, I think, 48 hours, and. Um, and I just I have very little doubt that the people who are profiting profiting from this war are going to be able to continue to profit from this war in one way or another. So uh, it when 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 we say it's a total blockade, it's important to remember that most of the country, even before this declaration, was suffering from really really severe um, price hikes res- that resulted from restrictions on uh, on imports. So. I just I I I'd, I'd want to be really sure that we don't jump out in front of this thing and say, well, it's it's a it's a hundred percent it's a hundred percent blockade and nothing's getting in. And equally, I don't want to minimize what's what we're seeing on the ground, which is a really horrendous impact on the situation. And it's probably worth pointing out that even before this latest move, the situation on the ground is pretty dire, right? Exactly. It's and we're, we're talking about the world's arguably the world's worst humanitarian crisis with uh, about 20, 21 million people out of 27 or so that need some form of assistance to survive, about 
17 million that don't know where their next meal is coming from, about 7 million on the verge of famine and starvation, and by far the world's largest and fastest growing cholera outbreak in recorded history. So we're not talking about a situation where everything was fine and dandy and then suddenly this happens. This is a really, really um, worrying sign in an already horrendous situation. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it seems to have taken a really bad situation and made it even a little bit more more uncertain. Yeah, and we were, you know, I, I mentioned before that there were already restrictions in place. For two and a half years since this phase of the conflict began, we and others have been saying that essentially there's a de facto blockade on Yemen. Um, And the reason we say that is because on top of the internationally established verification and inspection mechanism that's been set up, um, there's there's been additional layers of screening and clearance and licensing that have ultimately imposed extraordinary delays um, and obstacles in front of commercial importers and humanitarian assistance providers in a lot of the big ports. And um, it doesn't help that on top of that, one of those ports, uh, the most important of those ports, Hadeda, saw its cranes uh, be destroyed in August 2015 by a set of airstrikes. And so we're already in a situation where the inability to import food and fuel, as well as other commercial goods, is is undermining people's ability to buy the basics. And and I think it's worth talking about that crane situation a little more because it seems to me that like the situation of the cranes kind of underscores and tells the story of the larger conflict. So you had these cranes that were destroyed in airstrikes at the port of Hodeida and I think something like 80% of all food consumed in Yemen comes through that port one way or another, isn't that right? I think it, it, the figure I've heard is 70, but it's a 70. huge amount. A huge amount, and, yeah. yeah. And and so the, the Americans, as I'm led to understand it, offered to replace those cranes to offload some of those uh, food items. Yet, as far as I understand it, those cranes are just stuck somewhere in Dubai. Exactly. And so, well, the, the cranes themselves would be most important in um, offloading other commercial cargoes, um, largely in containers. Right now, you can offload cargo at Hadeda, but you basically have to do it with cranes that are already on the ships, which makes things go much more slowly and much more expensively. It restricts the, the, the kinds of ships that are actually able to, to berth there. Um, so the US, the US government, through USAID, paid for these, these mobile cranes um, that, that the World Food Program then procured and sent over to be installed. And what essentially happened is the Saudi-led coalition said is, no, we're not going to emplace those cranes. And they've been held up and, and stored in, in Dubai for no, no reason, no good reason that anyone can understand. And there are a number of people, chiefly among them, Senator Todd Young from Indiana, um, who's a freshman Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, who just ha- have been pushing and pushing and pushing for a better explanation, and absent a better explanation, the green light to install these cranes and haven't been getting one. And and so it's it's worth pointing out that the uh, port itself is controlled by the the Houthi rebel group, and and we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But 
what I find so interesting about the story of the cranes is that it highlights the, I think, dysfunctional relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia that is perpetuating the humanitarian crisis here. You know, on, on the one hand, the U.S. is supporting the Saudi-led coalition uh, through some, like, logistic support, through some targeting, um, and is, you know, an ally of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, yet at the same time, the U.S. wants to mitigate the humanitarian fallout from this Saudi-led coalition, you know, airstrike and, and blockade, yet uh, is unable to persuade their allies to allow them to install these these cranes. Yeah, that's, that basically sums it up. What we've seen in the past year and a half is a fundamental misunderstanding of what kind of leverage the United States has in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, it's at every juncture, um, there's been a discussion of, there's been an acknowledgement that it would be good for the United States, and not only for the United States, but for Saudi Arabia, not, and of course, uh, for the Yemeni people, if this conflict were to come, from it, were to, come to an end. Uh, and before that, for humanitarian assistance to be accessible to, uh, to all Yemenis. And unfortunately, we've just, we, what we've seen is um, U.S. policymakers are really unable to grapple with the leverage that they do have. And they, they feel they have a declining amount of leverage as time goes on. And some of that has happened because the U.S. has been in the midst of promoting the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and so, some of it has just happened because they, uh, people are concerned about what's happening internally in the kingdom. And, and, and just, just and, to, to stop you for for one second yeah. on on the JCPOA on the Iran nuclear deal, the the contention was that the U.S. ought not to press their Saudi and Gulf allies too hard because they wanted their support on the uh, Iran nuclear deal in a way to mitigate the um, Saudi and the other Gulf countries' fears that the JCPOA might lead to a warming of relations between uh, the United States and Iran was to sort of unleash the military aid floodgates to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And, and generally to deprioritize other, uh, other key issues in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And in a way, this is, I mean... You, you you cover humanitarian crises as widely as I do, but this this is the this is the the tried and true recipe for uh, a high profile humanitarian crisis that everybody can see if they choose, but no one does something about. Which is there are other political priorities that end up elevating on the agenda, and the fact that this is now the crisis where more people in the world need assistance than in any other. Um, more people on the verge of famine, the largest ever and fastest ever recorded cholera crisis, um, just doesn't register on the policy agenda. Because it is, again, like caught up in this geopolitical game between Iran and Saudi Arabia, in which uh, Saudi Arabia sees the rebel forces in Iran as, as proxies, uh, pardon me, the rebel forces in Yemen as proxies of Iran. And so it's kind of caught up in this wider geopolitical dynamic. Could you just, you know, for the, the sake of, of listeners who don't follow these issues as closely as, as we do, sort of explain briefly, like, the outbreak of this civil war and how we got to this point? Absolutely. Well, um, it's it's hard to decide whether to go back to the 60s or the 90s, but yeah. um, for, for our purposes, um, let's go back to the Arab Spring Revolutions of 2011 and 2012. 
Um, you know, I should stop you there. I've I've spoken to people <laughs> and sometimes, uh, and I've asked them like kind of the same questions. I've done a few episodes on Yemen. <laughs> I like to give like a little brief background. Or some of them are like, let's go back to the 1300s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, um, you can... <laughs> but let's go back to the Arab Spring. Seems like a good starting point for our purposes. I think I think so too. I think for for a conversation of this length, that probably is the right place. So um, former former President Saleh was then pushed from office. And under the terms of the deal, um, when when he re- when he resigned, um, he he got amnesty for any crimes he may he may have committed in office. And there was uh, a sort of a Gulf-sponsored initiative um, to transition Yemen into a different form of government. And uh, and 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 as part of that, there would be a national dialogue conference that would um, offer civil society's input into that. Um, and uh, President Saleh's vice president at the time um, is a guy named Hadi, and now Hadi is is president of the government of Yemen and has been. So what happened during that interim period following this, uh, following the Arab Spring Revolution, is that these processes essentially um, were the, the, this this conference and this Gulf-sponsored initiative was meant to transition Yemen to a different form of government. What what ended up happening is even as this National Dialogue Conference inputted civil society's views, a lot of people really weren't heard. And a lot of the grievances that people felt um, leading up to that revolution went unaddressed. Um, now, that, that speaks to the, the grievances of a lot of civil society. One of the major constituencies in Yemen um, that was sort of left behind and didn't like the way the National Dialogue uh, for it was was this group called the Houthis. Now the Houthis, um, they the Houthis are associated with a form of Islam, um, which is sort of like just on. It, it's Islamic scholars say it's basically right between um, Sunni and Shia Islam in terms of ideology. Um, they're called Zaydis, and they have a long history in Yemen, and they ideologically tend to identify more with Iran than with any other global player, and they they had had a lot of tension with former President Saleh going back a long way. Um, but in this case, what happened is they allied with former President Saleh, who was their former nemesis, um, and began a military push southward and essentially displaced uh, and toppled uh, President Hadi, forced him to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, President Hadi called for help. The Saudi uh, the Saudi leaders assembled a coalition, largely of Gulf states, but also another, a number of other allies, um, and with support from the United States and the United Kingdom, and announced that they would restore President Hadi to power. So we're now in a situation where the Saudis feel that because this war has escalated, that this sort of Iranian-aligned group has become more and more emboldened as the war goes on. And the longer it goes on, um, the more common cause they find with Iran and the more incentive Iran has to prolong what for them is a low cost, um, a low cost way to drain Saudi Arabia of its um, economic power, military power and prestige. And of course, in the midst of all of this are 27 million Yemenis who find themselves uh, beset by dire food insecurity an inability to move to the outside world because of uh, a de facto blockade even before this week imposed by the Saudi-led coalition 
and really pretty grievous human rights abuses on all sides. And and so where where do we go from here? I mean, this uh, conflict has been dragging on now for like uh, over two years. Uh, it seems to be getting worse. The the sort of Saudi airstrikes seem to be uh, hitting more and more civilian targets. The the Houthis uh, seem to be you know targeting civilian uh, infrastructure as well. It, it just seems to be just like a, a nonstop grind in which the Yemeni civilian population are the ones suffering the most. Um, so mm-hmm. how how do how like what are the options for? extricating Saudi Arabia from this conflict, from Iran from this conflict, and just having like a modicum of, of some sort of peace deal. There's good news and there's bad news, Mark. I'm, I'm sure you've done a ton of these with uh, with humanitarians and civil society activists focused on Syria, right? And I'm, I'm sure they, they've told you just how intractable the situation is and, you know, how, how the incentives are lined up to never allow uh, a ceasefire in, in the short term, at least. Um, it's not like that in Yemen. That's the good news. The good news is all of the parties actually have an incentive to look for an exit strategy. Um, This is a war that's not accomplishing the ends that the Saudi-led coalition has hoped it would, certainly not for the the backers of the Saudi-led coalition like the U.S. and the U.K. And for people, you know, for for the Houthis and for the the GPC headed by former President Saleh, um, there's there is an end game that works for them that would ultimately result in um, restoration of something close to normalcy for at least some Yemenis. The UN, the UN brokered process that's been set up through all of this, um, and this is where we get to the bad, the, the mixed news. The UN brokered process can't actually facilitate peace because at this point there are so many different armed groups in Yemen, all fighting for their own piece of the pie. And it's going to take years to put this back together. But the good news is getting the, getting the principal parties to agree, and that's the government of Yemen, the Saudi-led coalition, um, which in, a, in itself is now somewhat divided, the Houthis and former President Saleh, um, getting them to agree on a transitional, a transitional government and a ceasefire would actually enable the free flow of commerce and humanitarian assistance, and and maybe allow a lot of Yemen's really heroic civil service to get paid and to be empowered to to fulfill their uh, their mission as as public servants, be they in the health ministries or the education ministries, um, and th- because they really really do want to work. And if if that can happen, a lot of what's driving Yemen to the brink of crisis. Um, can can be addressed, even as the rest of the country um, and and the other parties are brought into the fold. You know, in, in the meantime, though, it doesn't seem like the political forces are aligning behind that that outcome. I mean, it, we're speaking in November. In September, I interviewed uh, Jamie McGoldrick, who is the top UN humanitarian official in Yemen. Uh, it was it was a small uh, private briefing. I was a few journalists in the room with him, and honestly, I have never seen or heard like a UN official express such a, such a profound lack of hope or 
uh, for anything mm -hmm. good to happen in the near future. He's like, you know, we're trying to contain the mess, but it's not getting better. It's only getting worse. And there's nothing we can do to, to stop it unless like the political actors, unless the belligerents decide they want to stop this. But until that's, that happens, uh, this, this is the situation is, is only getting worse. There is no hope. Yeah. And that, well, that's the, that's the other side of the same coin. Um, the, the, the dark side of that coin is nothing is getting better until the politics get solved. The, the positive side of the coin is that um, U.S. government officials can make a huge amount of difference if they actually decide to exercise the leverage and use the leverage that they have. The U.S. is a major security partner of the Saudi-led coalition. And even, I'll say, even beyond um, the capabilities that security partnership gives the Saudis, it also gives them a huge amount of diplomatic cover to say that they're acting on behalf of the international community and performing a regional leadership role in service to the international community. The U.S. has an opportunity to say, to, to sort of help that the Saudis help themselves and at the same time bring an end to this horrific crisis by using some of that leverage and saying, if you really want to play a, re a regional leadership role, then you're going to have to accept an outcome that is a compromise for you along with everybody else. And that's, that's what we haven't seen so far in this peace process is we haven't seen any of the parties really demonstrate the kind of flexibility that you need to bring it to an end. But I would actually end, argue that it seems that we're seeing the opposite of that from the United States at, at points. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you have these statements and tweets from uh, President Trump who seems to sort of be all in <laughs> Uh, with Saudi, with Saudi Arabia, you see like a, a, a sort of a coarsening of U.S. diplomatic posture against Iran uh, as part of the the JCPOA pullout, but also just sort of lower. Like you know, you'll see statements from like Nikki Haley chastising Iran for 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 its activities, um, but using you know language that might give Saudi Arabia even more cover to to sort of pursue what it seems as its uh, sort of goals in, in Yemen. So it seems that the leverage that would be required from the United States not only isn't there and uh, not only isn't being applied, but Saudi Arabia is being given more and more cover to do what it's, it's trying to do right now. Well, I'll grant you this, Mark. This has not been a, this has not been a good week for Yemen, um, inc including in the United States. And you mentioned in particular the president's tweets and Ambassador Haley's statement. Ambassador Haley has been one of the people most concerned about the humanitarian situation in Yemen. I would agree. And yeah, and and what, what like one of one of the things that we're grappling with um, as humanitarian advocates in this era is um, is the diffusion of 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 U.S. foreign policy making authority. Um, and so the, 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 upside, the downside of that is there's very little coherence to what we're seeing. The upside of it is, um, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, we just need to get one person to really care. <laughs> one, one, of the, one, of the, one of these key principles. Um, and you know, on and off, we've seen Secretary Haley, or Ambassador Haley demonstrate that interest. Secretary Tillerson is working with uh, a number of people in the interagency to prep for this meeting with the UK, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Oman in two weeks, uh, one week now, I think. And that might, it, it might produce very little, but it might produce something. And then separately from all of that, there's the role of Congress. And part of the reason why um, Oxfam and a number of other organizations have been so focused on arms sales, it's not because these arms 
give the Saudis a unique capability to prosecute the war. It's because they're 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 a great sort of stand-in for a public conversation about the U.S. role in the region and the and the U.S.-Saudi relationship vis-à-vis this crisis. And Congress has become gradually more interested and more concerned about that over the past year, year and a half. And um, the, the latest expression of that interest was 47 senators voting to block uh, a sale of precision guidance kits to, to Saudi Arabia in May and June. That's, I mean, that's unprecedented in terms of uh, an actual vote on an arms sale. So that's a, that's the sort of thing that makes me optimistic. And I think that's only going in our direction. I don't know if that's going to, I, I don't know if that in and of itself can, can make an impact, but we're hopeful that um, those kinds of demonstrations of concern combined with smart and thoughtful diplomacy um, from people in the administration can start to move us towards a better place. That's, that's fascinating to me that one, um, one advantage of a sort of an incoherent sort of overall U.S. foreign policy is that individuals, um, whether it's like Mattis or Haley or Tillerson, uh, have like an outsized role then. Like you just need one person to care. So that's shaping yeah. your advocacy strategy. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a really weird environment to be operating in, and it's I don't think it's good for U.S. foreign policy. Um, but when it when it comes to to taking a bold step to ease a humanitarian emergency, in many cases, it's the one who cares most that wins. And so um, we see our role as trying to get one of them to care. Um, well, well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Mark. Nice to talk to you again. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott. And I do want to give a a couple of quick plugs. I have some great content coming up in the near future. I have a couple of episodes that uh, I'm in the process of editing that I think you will love and some other interviews that I am currently scheduling for the coming weeks that are are ones I'm, I'm really excited about. So stay tuned. I don't want to give uh give away tip my hand too much but i i think you'll love it um thank you all for listening we'll see you soon bye the views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action